You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy. You know, when you get old enough, you can start talking about, oh, 30 years ago. Well, 30 years ago, I was introduced to our next guest through a mutual dear friend, the late Christopher Bird, author of The Secret Life of Plants, The Divining Hand, and co-author of Secrets of the Pyramids with the late Peter Tompkins. I recall Chris saying at the time, referring to Bob and myself, oh, you guys in Schwartz, you all have that interest in archaeology and consciousness stuff. What he meant was that Stephen Schwartz was deeply involved in using non-local consciousness to find the underwater artifacts of Cleopatra's and the port city of Alexandria, Egypt, where we had recently been. Over the decades, either Bob or myself have shared time with Stephen a few years ago on his book, Opening to the Infinite, which he and Bob chatted about, and more recently, a conference he was part of. But I haven't talked to Stephen in a long time about a lot of things, and what you will discover, as we did, is that Stephen Schwartz is a person with a strong desire to make the world a better place. He is thorough in each field he gets involved in and is an addition to the places he puts his focus. He joins all of us this hour to discuss some of his current work, tracking world trends and how they affect the United States of America and each one of us as well. Stephen, always a pleasure. It's been a very long time. It has. Too long. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Well, I'm glad you're here. So that our audience realize you have been involved as an experimentalist in parapsychology, you've been part of major social transformations, you write the civil rights, the transformation of the military into an all-voluntary meritocracy, citizen diplomacy between the United States and the Soviet Union in the 80s and 90s, meaning you, you've done a lot of different things. It's true. So, I have. But so, they've all been to one purpose. And what's that? Um how we can construct a more compassionate and life-affirming society. We share the goal. So when we look at these, and you felt that one of the things we could look at tonight is you have a new report called the Schwartz Report, and people can find that at either Stephen Schwartz, S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z dot com, or SchwartzReport.net, is you have talked about the perfect storm, the rise of localism and its effects on national wellness. And you begin your article with some stats about the United States, which I found pretty disturbing. Would you, would you start with that and tell us about that? Uh, sure. Well, you know, part of our problem with dealing with the situation we find ourselves in is we won't tell ourselves the truth. It's very hard if you won't tell yourself the truth. And if you look at the public discourse that that's going on now in preparation for the election, you just hear one, I don't know whether they're lies or whether they don't know better. It's hard to imagine they don't know better. But if, if you look at the United States, for instance, I heard somebody say the other day on the television, we have the best health care in the world. And I couldn't believe it. It's simply not true. According to the World Health Organization, we have the 37th, we are 37th. We're, we're ahead of, I think, Latvia or something. We have terrible health. We don't have a health care system in the United States. We have a, an illness profit system in which the primary priority of the system is to make money. And sickness is just a way of turning the taps on 
to get the money. So I, I don't. That's not a healthcare system. A healthcare system is where you place nas- individual and and familial wellness as the first priority as a national asset of a country. You want people to be healthy. They work better. They feel better. They're they're nicer to each other. There are all kinds of reasons. We uh, a compassionate, life-affirming country would place national wellness at the head of its list because, I mean, what is the point of a country if it isn't to make it possible for the largest number of people to lead the fullest lives? I mean, why would you join, as it were? So we don't tell ourselves the truth. We have the largest prison population in the world. In fact, it's much worse than that. We have 5% of the world's population, a little less, and we have 25% of the world's prison population. We have 2.3 million men and women in prison right now, costing an average of $35,000 a year to maintain. We run this huge gulag of human warehousing um, that's enormously expensive, destroys families, uh, it, it causes all kinds of negative social consequences, and now we're privatizing it so that it's becoming a kind of new American slavery. We we need to make different choices. That, I mean, the truth is, if you look at the United States, you see that all the wealth got moved to the top. Over the last 30 years, we've disemboweled the middle class. And, and, you know, it's not as if the middle class is an ancient birthright. You have to create them. This one, uh, the one you and I grew up in, was created after the Second World War when people came home with the GI Bill and GI housing and all the infrastructure work and the building of the interstate and all of that. And we created thousands and thousands of engineers and scientists and artists and writers and and built this extraordinary infrastructure that's sort of the fantasy we have about ourselves, but we haven't really done very much about it over the last 30 years, and it's wearing out. Mm-hmm. You, you also made a stunning statistical reference that I had no idea was true. I knew about the prison population because I used to cover that as the new sort of industry of slavery, as you exactly point out, and particularly when they have to produce something for a corporation that contracts to the private um, prison holder. It is extraordinary that this never shows up in the newspaper, never is there a story about it, and that a good percentage, over 50%, are for nonviolent crimes. These aren't like dangerous humans. Absolutely. Well, we have a psychosis about drugs. And what happens with these things, you can see it going on now in the post-9-11 period with Homeland Security. When you create a government agency whose purpose is to control people's behavior, it is the nature of the agency to do that and to want to expand its interests because it's like an organism. And so, you know, people want to expand. They want to have a bigger budget. They want to have more people to work for them. It, it, you know, it makes the people at the top feel better. And, and so you, these things metastasize, as it were, and they start growing. And that's what's happened. What, what we're doing now in prisons is, is privatizing them so that the corporations own them. And they get paid by the government. It's great. I mean, it's a wonderful deal in terms of the few people who are making money out of it. They um, they get paid to keep the prisoners, and then the prisoners work for you know twelve dollars a week or something for uh, uh, to produce something that they then sell. It's a 
And none of this is part of our public conversation. Never. We never. We, we never, none of the relevant issues that are going to affect the lives of you and I and all of your listeners are discussed uh, in the political debates. None of them. We talk about, we are obsessed with abortion. We are obsessed with gay marriage. It seems to me we ought to be looking at what sustains loving relationships that endure and nurture children well. That seems to me what we ought to be focusing on. Well, and Stephen, we you do that. No, and you rightly point out that if you don't, and this is what I learned through all my years as an investigative reporter, the answer is in the question. So if you don't ask Absolutely. the right questions, you don't get the right information. And you pointed out, which this was the point I was going to make earlier, I had no idea that we are 31st in the world for maternal mortality. That is extraordinarily disgraceful. Isn't that unbelievable? I was shocked. You, you would do better to, to have a child in some island country than to have her here. That is you, the mother. An enormous number of mothers die in the course of giving birth in the United States. As you say, it's 31st. It's amazing. I mean, you think about that for a minute. You, you'd think, well, surely in the United States... Uh, a birth mother would have the best possible chance she could have it anywhere in the world. It isn't true. Mm. So anyway, the machine or the baby is, is, is has their best chance being born in the United States. Mm-hmm. It's very sad. Well, you know, and again, because none of this shows up in the media, and the media is in the business of making money, and in the media world today, it's the more inflammatory and the more emotionally unbalanced it is, the better it is for their ratings. So nothing is about finding balance. It's all about how to extort people's feelings to create extraordinary polarization. That's right. Well, it's the rise of the sensoid. That's what I call them. You know, media used to be about data. So it was facts, and mm-hmm. the, the point of the facts were to identify um, the relevant information that you needed in order to make a decision or to educate yourself. And we made a very sharp distinction between editorial comment and reportage. Mm-hmm. That's completely gone by the boards now, and, it's, and data has been replaced by sensoids. Sensoids are units of information whose purpose is not to educate or enlighten but to uh, stimulate emotionally and to evoke as strong an emotional response as possible. Which is a form of mind control. Yes, actually, you could think of it that way. It's not done for that reason. It's done because it produces the biggest profits. Mm -hmm. But but that's what's happened with with, uh, corporate media, is that you look at it and, and what you see at the local level is conflict, things that will make you fearful, uh, you know, burglaries, murders, all that sort of stuff, because, uh, you know, that, that people pay attention to that. And at the national level, you have conversations um, that have very little informative content, but that evoke these tremendous emotional responses. I mean, you can see it in the Republican debates. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, imagine people standing up and cheering some some uh, a governor who who killed 200 people at least one of whom is almost certainly innocent and and thinking that was a good thing mm-hmm. 
Well, I used to joke, though it wasn't funny because we're so barbarian, it's becoming true. I used to say we're going to have beheading on TV pretty soon. Look, I want to um, focus on some of these wonderful things you've done in the Schwartz Report for January, February 2012. It's titled The Perfect Storm, The Rise of Localism and Its Effects on National Wellness. And in it, you begin to outline some of the trends that all of us, whether or not media covers it or not, are going to have to deal with. These are realities, and that's why I am so taken with your Schwartz report. So thank you for doing them. Oh, well, thank you very much. Yes, yes. I've been doing it for some time, and and that's what I do. I look at trends. Um, I am, And then I write about them also in, uh, uh, in my column that I do once every month in, uh, Explore, in the journal Explore. Wonderful. Well, you start out by saying climate change, sea level rise, and associated stream weather, extreme weather events. And of course, our program has covered this really since we started and was some of the first coverage of it. And then you go on to talk about the grand, the green transition, excuse me, out of the age of petro into an environment of non-polluting energy, and then a bunch of other things. So share with our audience some of these basic trends that can be good. They don't have to be bad. Yes, they're challenges, but again, challenges can bring out the best in humanity. Absolutely. I mean, I, I go from being very put down to uh, feeling, because uh, I, I am increasingly in contact with with uh, local groups that are arising, and I'm, I'm about to do a conference on this, that, um, that makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel much better about mm-hmm. it. Well, I mean, if you look at if, if just if you look at the storm that's coming, you've got the green transition, which you already mentioned. That's going to have a terrific dislocative uh, uh, effect, just as the transition from coal to petroleum did, or from sail to steam did. So, the, whenever energy, whenever the energy system changes, it it makes a big difference. So that's going to happen, but ultimately, that is going to be for the good. And it is possible, and I increasingly think it is likely even. I'm willing to go out that far. I think low-energy nuclear reactions, that is what used to be called cold fusion, I think it's going to come through. Mm -hmm. There are now two companies which claim that they are developing commercial technologies and it's going to the underwriter's laboratory. And and I think this year, 2012, we're going to see if low-energy nuclear reactive uh, energy is for real, and if it is, it's going to f- spread like the uh, iPod. Mm-hmm. So it's going to, in ten years, we'll be looking at a completely different energy equation. I mean, it's going to happen quickly. Normally, these things take at least a generation, but if this uh, low energy nuclear reaction technology is legit, I mean, it really delivers the goods over unity for the prices they're talking about. It's a game changer. Yeah, and it, it's if it also doesn't a... prove, then we're going to see the we're going to see the rise of solar and wind, which we'll see anyway. Right. But but um, we're going to go into a new energy paradigm, mm-hmm. and and, um, and that's going to be terribly dislocative dis- dislocative for uh, a lot of peoples. Well, we gonna, you know we talked with Pons and Fleischmann years ago and other labs who replicated what they had done, even though everybody was saying it wasn't possible, and cold fusion or what it's now being called. Um, you know, again, it's like what we have found in naturopathic or holistic medicine with the cancer industry, and we talked about that on another occasion with uh, Thomas Elias about the Brzezinski work. But coming back to some of the things that you also write 
rightly point out, is the decline of the American economic empire. Yes. Well, what's happening um, is the rise of the virtual state. You know, we like to think, for instance, of, of European countries as being very old. And, and they are, the countries are old, but not their governmental systems. Germany didn't become a country until the end of the 19th century, 1871 or 78, I can't remember. Italy didn't become a country until the end of, as Italy, as we think of it today. The, um, um, there was a huge transition that occurred at the end of the 19th century and into the, to the end of the First World War. And we're about to go through another one of these because what's happening is, is multinational corporations have arisen, and because of the way they get control of the governments and write the laws the way they want, in which they function as countries, but they have no geography, and therefore they have no national loyalty. You saw Jobs say, no, those jobs are not coming back, and he explained why. We have allowed our infrastructure to reach a point. We've, we've passed a tip point. And, um, and corporations, because they no longer have national loyalties, if you're a multinational corporation and it's cheaper to make it in Brazil or wherever, well, you know, the fact that shipping that factory that's on the shores of Lake Erie down to Brazil uh, may put 50,000 people out of work in the United States, well, that's sort of unfortunate, but not your problem because your interest is in profit, and, um, and because of the way the laws are, are written, you're permitted to do it. And so these multinationals really function as nations now, and, and neither our, our foreign policy nor our economic system really has fully acknowledged that. And you also point out we do have to take a break, and when we come back, I'd like to pick up here. It's also the first time, a real biggie, you write, the first time in 500 years, the world will not be dominated by Atlantic Caucasian values. And I'd like to come back and start there. And um, Stephen, again, you write beautifully, and it's so well-researched that every paragraph is meaningful. And I thank you, because I know how much time that takes. It looks easy, but it takes a lot of time. So as I said, right, right before the break, one of the bullets in your trends is for the first time in 500 years, the world, quote, will not be dominated by Atlantic Caucasian values. So what does this mean? Well, if you think about it, I mean, you and I and probably most of your listeners, uh, we grew up in a bipolar world that developed after the Second War. That's the Soviet Union on one side and the United States on the other and all the other countries lined up on one side or another. So geopolitically, we had a... a roughly a bipolar world. Well, the Soviet Union collapsed at the end of 1991, and, and um, since then we've sort of been lumbering across the geopolitical landscape on our own. But now what's happening is China is arising, Brazil is about to displace England, uh, Great Britain, in terms of the size of their economy. Uh, uh, there are a lot of centers to Russia, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia. I mean, there, there are other areas of the world that are becoming um, powers, particularly, of course, China, but no less Brazil. Brazil's going to be a huge force in, in uh, uh, the Western Hemisphere. So you have all of these shifts that are occurring, 
And this is really going to be the first time since Henry the Navigator, uh, the Portuguese king who, who created map, a school for maps and navigation and really made the exploration of the, what was then called the New World possible and circum, you know, going around the globe. Mm-hmm. And so ever since then, most of the decisions that got, the big decisions that got made about how the world would be ordered um, arose because of mid-Atlantic, European, and then American uh, cultural and racial perspectives. And that's going to change, and it's going to be very difficult for some people. More than that, the United States is about to become a majority non-white country. It's going to be a a country of minorities. There will be no majority. And 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 that's just, there's a certain kind of person... You can see it in the teabagger movement. You can see it. I'm I'm sad to say I'm a southerner from Virginia. In in the behavior of, of southern legislatures and governors, you can see this. This I mean, all the birther movement. You can see that racism is alive and well and nurtured in all its toxicity, and that it's for many people. It's going to be very tough to, to look at the world and think well. The Chinese are going to dominate that sector, or the Indians are going to dominate. I left them out. The Indians are going to dominate this sector. But that's what's going to happen. We, we are no longer the leaders in innovation, again, because we've allowed our infrastructure to deteriorate. <clears throat> we, we, um, we put restrictions on our science. That's why stem cell research is moving out of the United States, I, I think, In the future, you're going to see a lot of the big discoveries that's already happening coming outside the United States. Not that the United States won't be active, but that it'll just no longer dominate the way Mm -hmm. it does. I mean, it's not like we're going to drop off the edge of the moon or something, but we're going to be a smaller player. That's that's just the way it's going to be. Yeah, you know, there was a great book written uh, years ago called A Short History of the Future by the late Wayne Wagar. I think that was his name, and and he talked about the Red Earth Inc. and then world actually first World Inc. and then Chinese period, and then we would go to back to nations. But anyway, I wanted to talk about as you do. You know, all of this is not bad news because sometimes it's our difficulties that make us reevaluate what are our values, you know, what are our priorities. And one of the things that you're beginning to write about, and I think it's so beautiful, and it deals so much with the stabilizing of the middle class in this country, which is really the backbone of business and health is that there is a kind of localism that's beginning to happen out of the goodwill of citizenry who aren't going to sit around and wait for a bunch of bozos in Congress to do nothing. Yep, that's exactly what's happening. It's fascinating to watch. Um, As a result of, of, uh, we're going through a schism in which there are two dominant worldviews that are arising. And I've, one of my principal areas of research right now is, is what I call uh, social wellness, mm-hmm. arising from social values, because I think most of the conversation that is had publicly, which is almost entirely about politics, is really asking, as you, uh, as you pointed out earlier, uh, they're asking the wrong questions. The, the real question ought to be, it seems to me, what produces national wellness? What 
makes people healthy, what makes people happy, what makes people uh, feel employed and, and contributing to the world and, and making the world a better place and, and making their immediate geography a nicer, you know, nicer. All of those things make people feel better. And in response to all of this negativity and, and in response to the, really the loss of, of any meaningful input at the federal level, People are beginning to work locally. And that um, On the 2nd of February, I'm doing a conference here on Whidbey Island at the Whidbey Institute on just this centered around food because food is, of course, a principal issue. And what you're seeing is just ordinary folk who are looking at communities, particularly in smaller communities where it's sort of a more conceivable scale, they look at something as they have done here on the island where I live, and they like eating, like kids not getting enough to eat, and they say, "No, that's not acceptable. We're going to fix that." And uh, here on Whidbey, we have a whole interlocking set of social safety nets that are designed to produce a a, a, a decent quality of life for everybody on the island, even people in distress. Because, and it's all done uh, treating these people with great respect. They're, they're not treated as failures or wards of the state or food stamp queens or any of that kind of nonsense. They're just treated as neighbors who are having a hard time. And as a result of that, you can see the social outcomes. And that's, you can see it all over the country. The blue social, out, uh, uh, social values produce better outcomes than red social values. If you look at the red states and the red families, you see more spousal abuse, physical abuse, black eyes, broken limbs. You see more divorce. You see more obesity. You see more porn usage. You see more teen pregnancies. You see more uh, type 2 diabetes. You see lower education you see more uh, uh, child violence. You see lower education. Oh, I've mentioned that one. Uh, lower literacy. Now, those those are actual those are actual numbers. Uh, and if you read my stuff, you can, anybody can go to uh, either my the website you cited or Explore Journal and click on the Schwartz report there. That's at the column. If you look at this, the, the, we have actual data. We know how to fix this. We just choose not to do it. But what's happening is at the local level, people are doing it, and it's making a huge difference in the Northeast, uh, here in the Northwest particularly. Uh, well, I could even say here, here in Baltimore, you know, there's a whole model called Healthy Neighborhoods where you identify what stabilizes a community, affordable housing, education, safety, good food, resources, businesses, supporting local businesses. And I think you're right. I mean, from my vantage point, I think this is such a healthy move towards states' rights awareness and individual sovereignty that we lost for so long under the national model that our identity was as a nation. And then we flip-flopped in that over our lifetime, the states became servants of the federal government when, in fact, the federal government was designed to serve the states. And so the regionalism and localism, to me, is such a great thing that's happening. Yeah, well, what's interesting is I'm, I'm fascinated that it hasn't dawned on the great bulk of social progressives 
to understand that they ought to agree with the theocratic right uh, about about states' rights, because nothing is going to happen at the federal level. With Citizens United, um, I mean, you just buy, the government's for sale. No question That's about it. what that decision is about. Yeah. And you can see the results. I mean, it's... it's perfectly obvious yeah even watching the republicans fight among themselves because of it it's Absolutely. just uh, yeah all this stuff the government is for sale because we don't do anything about controlling uh, the inflow of money what we've basically done is legalized bribery and so communities aren't going to be able to look to the federal government i mean this will change but in the immediate short-term future mid-term future I would say by 2050, I think things have sorted themselves out. Mm -hmm. But between now and 2050, it's going to get very complicated. And that's why I'm putting a lot of energy into encouraging localism and uh, the rise of regionalism. Because what cannot get done at the federal level, particularly if energy can decentralize, that's a big part of it. If these... If, if these uh, either wind, solar, or the low-energy nuclear reaction uh, technology, if those things allow the decentralization of energy, then it's going to be possible for local communities to create their own, own energy independence and begin to make local decisions about how they're going to deal with things. I mean, every incoming Republican freshman representative took an uh, in this last go-round took an oath that he wasn't going to do anything about climate change. And it is my belief nothing is going to be done about climate change. Get over it. And we got to start planning on what's going to, well, how are we going to deal with what's coming? Which, for instance, for Baltimore is going to be very difficult because it's going to flood the harbor. Yeah. Well, more than the harbor. I mean, as an inland estuary, other than Louisiana, we're second in the list of prone to being flooded out. But in, and, and, I, and I want to come back, though, to this issue of localizing and or as we used to say, you know, think global, act local, meaning think about the consequences of what we do, not just for the now, but for seven generations to come, as the native Indians would yeah. say. I loved that you referred to Benjamin Franklin, one of Dr. Bob's and my favorite Americans, you know, no human is perfect, and he wasn't either, but he had all the right intentions and the right spirit and had so oh, much to I offer. Oh, Benjamin Franklin was one of the coolest guys I've ever met. He is, he is a really very, very interesting man. He had some kind of breakthrough experience that awakened him when he was 15, and his vision of America was that it was going to be a land of uh, uh, completely different than Jefferson or, or Hamilton. His vision was that America was going to be a country made up of immigrants who came here, who were upwardly mobile, technologically sophisticated, family-oriented, who understood that for society to function best, you had to have both individual entrepreneurism, but you also had to have collectivism. He organized the first fire department, the first hospital, first sanitation, first insurance company. I mean, on and on and on and on. It, it, he's, he is, he's the only one of the founders who could walk into a room today and pick up the conversation. It's he is absolutely one of, I, I've written about him exhaustively, I think, many articles. I wanted to write a book about him, but there were several others that just came out. I still want to do it because... He created the blind protocol. 
He invented musical instruments. He was the only person uh, who really got the role. He wrote got the role of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And that was what I was going to say, is that, you know, every human on this planet has the capacity for unity consciousness, and we're all designed for it, and how we choose to live our lives will either bring us closer to it or further away. And this unity consciousness understands that everything is interconnected. I am to you, my feelings, my thoughts, my actions, my words. And you talk a lot because you've spent so much in your life working with not only non-local consciousness, which shows we can remote view. We can be telepathic, which I think is the power of every human and animal on this earth. Um, but that right. this, this is a reality of where we are now, and we're about to remember who we are. Yeah, well, the, uh, yes, um, uh, we, we hope. I'm not, yeah, I, we need to awaken to, I would put it differently. We need to awaken to who we are, and it is beginning to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it, 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 if I could wave a magic wand, and the one thing that would happen that I could, you know, I get one wish from the fairy, it would be that everybody develop the practice of daily meditation. I don't care what way you do it, it doesn't make any difference, that you develop the practice of meditation because meditation shows, uh, shows you the way. You just naturally open up to this aspect of yourself. It also does lots of other things. It improves your brain. It literally makes it grow. It increases its capacity, its, its, its efficiency in a way. It makes you more creative. You sleep better. You have a better sex life. You, you uh, think more clearly. Your blood pressure goes down. I mean, just all sorts of things. Uh, but as we awaken, and, and it's beginning to happen, that's part of this schism that's going on. Mm-hmm. There is a large part of the population that has awakened. That's the only way I can describe it. That's true. I think that they used to be called cultural experience. Yeah. Knows it. it the born again experience is the other side of it. Is the antipode because it comes in. It's an awakening experience that comes in in a very very rigidly structured uh, 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 social hierarchy that you then have to. Uh, uh, give up to. your will, uh, basically, to the yeah. structure that governs you. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. But the experience that you and I are talking about is spreading, and that's part of what's driving this localism. It's part of what's driving the ecological movement. And you're absolutely right. All of the research, I've been doing this for 45 years, all of the research that I look at tells me all consciousness is interdependent and interconnected. From the smallest single-cell organism to the highest high-order mammal, we're all in the game together. No question about it. And when we come back, what I'd like to do then is spend some time, as you do in your newsletter, on the, in the Schwartz Report about meditation, self-controlled, psychophysical self-regulation, and some of the processes you describe I think would be wonderful to share. So don't go away. Our guest is Stephen A. Schwartz. Go to explorejournal.com. You can click on the Schwartz content. You can also go to the schwartzreport.net or find a link on our website at 2121stcenturyradio.com. So you wrote in your one of your beautiful reports, Meditation, the Controlled Psychophysical Self-Regulation Process That Works, that as an example, between 2006 and 2009, there were a thousand papers in the medical journals on the subject of meditation. Yeah, isn't that cool? It's I, extraordinary. That when I, so when why? I why? Doing why? Research on this. Go ahead. 
Uh, no, I was just, I was, it was great. I couldn't believe it. No, it's extraordinary because it used to be when those of us meditated back in the 60s and 70s, it was very fringe or you had to be Hindi or, but in fact, you point out all the world's peoples use meditation. They just may not call it that. That's right. It's, it doesn't matter what you call it. You know, it's, um, there's only one mountain in town and it's an illusion. So how you get up it is purely <laughs> a matter of your personal style and taste. So uh, mostly what you want to do is just find some way to do it and then do it. It's the regular practice of it because what meditation really does, the key to it is that it, it teaches you through experience. It has a kind of biofeedback quality. It teaches you through experience the pathway to open to yourself, and, you, and, and, and it shows you that the way to do it is through intentioned focus. That's you, that's why you use mantras or you use affirmations or it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, there is a certain level of it that using a mantra that's been used for a thousand years, you 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 are aligning yourself, making yourself resonant with uh, informational architecture in the non-local. But we don't have to get quite that esoteric. But, but I'd like to just add to that, Stephen. It's same if you say Hebrew prayers or if you say prayers from your particular Bible. I mean, things that people have been repeating for centuries connects us to the pathway of that particular vibration. So that's why in most traditions we show reverence for the ancients and we attach ourselves yeah. to all the humans who have done this great work before us. Yeah, you know, if you, if you strip away, if you look at religious ceremonies, and you strip away the dogma, which is all entirely man-made. You know, humans are the, they decide what's holy. It's because they're the ones who are doing the worshiping. So the thing that, that separates one guy, that makes him a prophet, and another guy a crank, is the belief of the people that are listening to him and the subjective experience they're having. So they decide what's, what's holy. That's why different religions, I mean, basically they all say the same thing, but they have all this other stuff sort of gooed onto them that, that um, is cultural and man-made. But if you look at just the essence of the, the Gnostic experience itself, and you look at religious ceremonies, what you see is, I mean, think about it for a minute. You, you establish a place where you're going to gather to have an experience. That becomes the sacred place, whether it's a synagogue or a, a temple or a church or a cathedral or a sacred grove. It doesn't make any difference. You establish the place that's going to be the place. And you appoint a time that's going to be the time. You're building a protocol. It's just like a science protocol. And you, you gather at that time and you make a statement of affirmation, of shared intention. If you're a Christian, it would be the Nicene Creed. So you make this statement of intention that's linking you together. And then you, you begin a period of drumming or chanting or singing or dancing, it also doesn't matter. And the function of that is to entrain all of the brains of all the people that are in the group. And, in fact, research shows that's what happens. So now you have all these people who are entrained. And they are expressing a period, uh, they are expressing a, a shared intention. And then there's a period of time when the experience is allowed to occur. And so 
maybe if you're a charismatic, that's speaking in tongues, or if you're a voodoo practitioner, that's being uh, taken over by one of the voodoo gods, you know, that sort of thing. And then there's a period where there's a reaffirmation of the statement and an agreement that you're going to meet again at, uh, at an appointed time. And, and when you strip away all the dogmatic stuff, that's what you see in all religious ceremonies. And the reason is, is that that allows you, uh, there is a collective process of linkage which makes it easier for this to happen, and when it happens, um, affirms it. And so for all of human history, all over the globe, whatever the culture, people have been doing this. This opening to the non-local aspect of ourselves and becoming aware that we are interconnected and interdependent. And that even though we feel ourselves not to be terribly powerful, that we can have a difference. I mean, if you look at the Nobel Peace Prize, there are three kinds of people that win that prize. There are institutions and organizations that are uh, doing what they're supposed to do. There are government officials and hereditary leaders, Nelson Mandela is an example of that, or Henry Kissinger is an example of a government official, or Barack Obama. And then there's, a, there's another group, there's a third group, and that's uh, ordinary people. They're just, uh, lots of them women, by the way. Yeah, so I've noticed, which is beautiful. To women. Yes, it's very interesting, as is this localism movement. Yes, that's true, too. Um uh, and so, and, by the way, is the nonprofit movement in general. It's founded so much yes. by women through their own journeys with challenges, and then they go to make the world better. It's so interesting. Exactly, and it's see, and so, and we know from micro lending that mm-hmm. the most effective micro lending is to give it to women yeah. because the men will go out and drink it, or you know, pay somebody to have sex. The women will, you know, will buy milk and build tables and things like that. Well, there's no question we're coming into not only this divine awareness of our own self, but that means coming into balance between our masculine and feminine insides, our, you know, ability to include as well as to discern, to be receptive as well as to emanate. I mean, so we see this in the culture as well as within each of our own persons. That's right. Uh, You know what? I I lived through Watergate. I was actually in government uh, during Watergate. Uh, Doing some work for the White House and and, um, and and working at the Department of the Navy and and I came and I knew a lot of the people that were involved with Watergate and I came away from it thinking that it represented all the pencils people stole from the office. That is, it it was the result of a state of beingness in which you feel yourself in the service of what you think is the right thing. Uh, above any consideration of law or uh, uh, feelings about the other person or any of that. You you feel that you are somehow empowered to make this choice, and that's what the Nixon administration did. They just thought, well, we know better, and we're Mm going to do this, and they got caught. Uh, uh, And and so by the time I left government, I, that's that was my thinking. It represented all the pencils people stole from the office, collectively expressed at the presidential level. Mm-hmm. I don't think people realize how much power individuals have. I mean, if you look at like smoking, for instance, when you and I were young, 
there were advertisements on the television of dancing old gold, little dancing cigarette packs. Well, there were doctors who you, told us which brand to smoke. Yeah, and doctors, four out of five doctors say smoke this. Right. Well, in, in 50 years, that has almost changed. About 11% of the population still smokes. The same thing with civil rights. I mean, I date civil rights really uh, in the modern sense from the 1948 signing by Harry Truman of the act that desegregated the military to uh, Lyndon Johnson's signing in 64, the Civil Rights Act. Well, that you can look at that period of time and you can see <clears throat> these things take a generation or two to, mm-hmm. to work, mm-hmm. but they do work. If, if you look at the Quakers, you, there are... There are 158,000 Quakers in the United States, and in the whole of American history, there have been less than a million. And yet every single socially progressive development that has happened in the United States, abolition, women's suffrage, public education, penal reform, the environmental movement, the nuclear freeze, all of that, all of it begins, really takes root uh, with a small group of Quakers. So this group of people have figured out how individuals make change happen in a nonviolent beingness way. And, of course, what they show, as does anybody who examines their own life or their will and their desire to be of service, it's through intention, good acts, and the yep. capacity to listen. Yep. And if, so- if, if you would, if you, if. If, if each of us would make the decision, I'm not going to do anything that is not compassionately life-affirming. Every choice I make, I'm going to, if, whatever the options are, I'm going to choose the one that is the most compassionate and life-affirming. And if we made that as a, a commitment to ourselves and we made choices on that basis, within a generation we would utterly change uh, the world. It can be done. I agree with you. I'm I'm also a cheerleader for paradise, meaning I, I think that all of us have this written into our soul and our personalities, our culture, and our individual experiences sometimes mask over it. And so as you point out, Stephen, meditation allows us to open up to the divine within. And we're going to have to say goodbye, but I want to encourage our audience, and thank you so much for joining us. I think we definitely need another hour or two. Stephen Schwartz can be found at schwartzreport.net, explorejournal.com, stephenschwartz.com, or at 21stcenturyradio.com. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Kortner. Our engineer is Anita Brockington, and I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.